Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Belinda Fabian. Belinda is a PhD candidate in the Department of Molecular Sciences at Macquarie University, where she's using cutting-edge molecular biology and sequencing techniques to study the genes of beneficial bacteria that colonise plant roots. Belinda is in her third year and is supervised by distinguished Professor Ian Paulson and Dr Sasha Tetu. Prior to this, Belinda completed a Bachelor of Science, part-time while working full-time, and Masters of Research at Macquarie University and was awarded the University Medal in Biology for her exceptional results in these programs. Belinda's master's project focused on extrafloral nectar production by Australian native plants, and this is where her passion for plant biology was ignited. Before changing to a science pathway, Belinda completed a Bachelor of Commerce Accounting, Bachelor of Business Administration double degree at Macquarie University, and then worked for 11 years in accounting in a private home improvement company. Belinda has tutored in multiple undergraduate biology and molecular sciences units over five years and is passionate about preparing students for the workplace and showing the world that there is a lot of creativity in science. When she's not doing science, Belinda loves making mixed media art and shares this passion by teaching at a local art and craft store. Thanks for joining me, Belinda. Thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity to be here. First time on a podcast. Excellent. We've known each other for a few years now. And yet it's only recently that I discovered a bit more about the path that led you to enrol in a PhD at Macquarie. And I was surprised to learn that science wasn't your first degree. Can you talk about what influenced your decision to study a Bachelor of Commerce following your HSC? Yeah, so during high school, uh, I enjoyed maths, I did business studies, but I also did biology and chemistry, which I both enjoyed and did well in. Um, So my dad was an accountant and so when you do work experience in year 10, I did my work experience with him in accounting because that's just easy, right? So when I came to to start uni at Macquarie here, I was interested in doing a double degree of business and science, but that wasn't an option that was offered at the time. So I just chose to go down the easier path and do the, bachelor, the double degree, um, the Bachelor of Business Administration, Bachelor of Commerce in Accounting. Uh, So I went almost all the way through, and then when I got close to the end, I found out that I could have actually designed my own double degree uh, in business and science. Uh, So that was a little frustrating. So I decided to just finish my um, double degree in um, the business faculty, Um, but I did extend it for an extra six months so that I could take some (laughs) science electives. So I did a couple of courses in genetics to, to round out my business degree. So you always knew science was really the love. And when we talked previously about that, you said that it was a thought of, well, what can you do with a science degree? Yeah, when I was in high school, I didn't even have a concept that a scientist was a job that you could do. There were no scientists in my world. It didn't really seem like a... I'm not sure if I thought about it that much, but it didn't seem like a practical way to go. So I went the practical solution, which mm. was the business and commerce mm. angle. And, and of course, there's an obvious job at the end. Whereas with yes, science, I was... I could see the job. It was in my household every day as an accountant. So that was a very obvious career path for me, whereas scientists just didn't even really occur to me. I didn't, it didn't even exist in my world. 
and particularly being female, probably there weren't even on television or you know other places yeah. you didn't see them in I saw film. My biology teacher was female. My chemistry teacher was male, but I guess that in my mind that was more teacher yes. rather than scientist. Mm. So, yeah, it makes sense. I think that happens to a lot of people. So, what did you do then after you completed the Bachelor of Commerce? So, I got a full time job working in entry level accounting uh, for a home improvement company, so a private company. I did some study to become a CPA, so a certified practicing accountant. So I did a year of that and I did well at it, but I didn't enjoy it. They sent me a big folder of material and said, come back in six months and do the exam. <laughs> so that method of learning just didn't work for me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a person who just wants to read a whole folder of stuff. So I decided to give that away, but then I couldn't just be a person who went home at night and did nothing, came back to work the next day. So I applied to Macquarie for a Bachelor of Science um, as a mature age entry. I don't feel like I was mature age, but that's what they called it. And so I enrolled in that part-time while working full-time in my accounting job. I did most of the units in the science degree uh, by distance where possible, uh, or I arranged with my manager to have time off. Throughout that experience, I was working full time and I was changing positions within the company. They didn't really, they didn't mind that I was doing a science degree, but they didn't really care about that either. So I was, uh, I changed accounting positions. I did some time in reporting on marketing campaigns. I was an executive assistant for the CEO for a while. Um, I did some project management, which we'll come back to later. Sure. <laughs> I didn't really have a plan of what I was gonna do in my degree at the time. I just enjoyed learning and studying. So I did a whole collection of units that didn't necessarily need, in inverted commas, for my qualification or in biology. So I did, I branched out a bit into other sciences. So I did some molecular sciences units and some geology, but I also did some linguistics and some critical thinking, so which I, don't know, I feel like they made me more of a well-rounded human, so to speak. Mm. Um, and in the end, it took me seven years to complete the science degree part-time. That's quite an achievement, quite an achievement. And I imagine really has stood you in good stead for the PhD. Great resilience and I guess, yeah, that just stickability really. So what do you think you learned? You've talked about all the things that you ended up doing in this home improvements company, which obviously they could see that you were this well-rounded person and you could really do different things, turn your hand to most things. So what do you think you learned by doing all those different roles and really even for your Bachelor of Commerce that you were able to take with you into your transition to science and into the PhD? The first thing that came to mind when you mentioned this question was spreadsheets. We use a lot of spreadsheets in accounting. And when I came in as a student into science, I just could not believe how many students did not have a clue about how to use a spreadsheet, how to do a formula, how to make a very basic graph in Excel of just getting two things and plotting them against each other. So that was a real eye-opener that I had a bunch of skills that I brought with me that wasn't just obvious skills that a student would have. I learned a bunch of ways of behaving in a workplace. Um, so for example, I learned how to write an email, which managing director of the company used to always say, if I have to scroll down in your email, it's too long. 
So that was just a nice life lesson <laughs> of how to get the attention of someone, how to communicate ah. a message in a succinct way. A great professional skill. Some of the other things that a CEO used to say were, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. So that just set me up to work out what I could provide as a solution instead of just coming and saying, I don't know what to do. Even if my solutions that I came with were wrong or not the best solution, at least I had tried and thought about it and worked through the problem. And sometimes that thinking helps. You've done the preliminary thinking and yeah. they can take it. They can it. then build on that or say, yes, we'll do that. Or oh, now that makes me think of another option. Yep. Um, my managing director would say, if you had to put your hand in your pocket to pay for this initiative, whatever thing you were proposing, would you do that? And that made me really think about the value that a particular initiative would bring and don't just fritter money away just because it's not your money. It's still valuable commodity that we need to plan for. Uh, so that stands me in good stead when we're buying chemicals for the lab or thinking about wasting this <laughs> piece of consumable or something like that. Um, I learned to be really organised. So I have a calendar now which I put everything in different colours for different things so I, and I know what that system means and it might not mean anything to anybody else but works for me. Learned to keep really good records um, because we had to for legal reasons or for accounting reasons and I, something really that I think is small but really important is learning how to name files on your computer so that you can find them later because if you just call it stuff or things then you've got 75 files called things and that's <laughs> not helpful. Yeah, no. So learning how to date files in reverse chronological order so that when you sort the list of files they all turn up in the order in which you created them or just things like that which now seem simple to me but when I explain them to other people it's a revelation. <laughs> yeah being very systematic really is yes. what you're talking about. Yes yeah. very much so. I learned about how payroll works and how tax works. That's a skill that we don't have a lot as individuals coming out of high school or even coming out of university if you've never had a job or you've never really thought about it you just get your paycheck and you money comes out and you do your tax return and it doesn't really mean anything to you but I learned a lot about long service leave and annual leave and sick leave and how all those rules work and how they're managed within a workplace. And how that actually costs the organisation and yeah. how they have to manage that. And load. that there are on costs which as we call them on top of salaries so superannuation and payroll tax if you work for a big organisation and that there's more to salaries than just here's some money that you put in your pocket. Uh, I learned how to manage upwards, so how to manage my boss to get what I needed or to fit within their busy schedule. And something that just happened last week was that uh, one of my colleagues was applying for a visa because she's an international person and she needs to go to a conference in another country so she needed to apply for a visa and they asked her for a certificate of currency for her insurance and she didn't, she had no clue what that even meant and I could pull out of my back pocket from my accounting knowledge what a certificate of currency is, so for the listeners, it's just a certificate from the insurance company that says your insurance is valid and it is paid up to this point because just because you took out a policy doesn't mean you're still paying for it. Mm. So it doesn't mean it's current. So I was able to explain that to her because we had, in the accounting job that I had done, I had dealt with shopping centres where our organisation would have a stand and they would need us to provide our certificate of currency for our public liability insurance. So if someone got hurt in our stand, our insurance would cover it, not the shopping centres. So I just had this knowledge that I didn't even really know that was important to know. It's just all in yeah. the cache. So that was a really recent example. Yeah, and I guess that 
it stands you again in good stead because if you're interested in science communication, for example, you might be going out to shopping centres or to other places, open yeah. days and so on, whatever Organizing it might be. events, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. you understand that. Yeah. And also I imagine in terms of labs, you know, you need to be able to budget. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, that, that is definitely a skill that I bring from accounting. Um, in my mind, that's sort of tied up with the spreadsheets <laughs> thing. But, yes, learning, learning how to work out the profit on a project or we mean in science we don't normally try and make a profit but at least accounting for this is the income coming in and then these are all the expenses coming out including salaries and on costs which are things that other people might not even be aware of and being able to empathize with the administration staff who have to deal with all of these purchase orders and <laughs> invoices and all these things that we sometimes as scientists might think are just frustrations why is admin making me jump through these hoops? This doesn't seem to be getting anybody anywhere. And it's taking a really long time for me to buy my chemical or to book my accommodation, but I can empathize with their job and why why they need all those things and what they're having to do on their side from being on that side in my accounting job. So being able to walk in their shoes because you have. Absolutely. Yep. Totally understand the GST. And the <laughs> I think that's things. actually another good skill and having that genuine empathy for those people in those roles because they are dictated a lot by legislation or governance. And so understanding that, you, you have a potential to make better relationships. And if they can make it happen more quickly, they'll do it for people like yourself. Who uh, aren't just criticising <laughs> them or getting angry That's right. about why it's taking yeah. so long or why there's so many forms. But also on the other side of that, I, I know some things that they could theoretically do that other people wouldn't know to ask for. So that's another advantage. That's right. And some of them, if they're, they've only just come into that role, you might actually be able to say, did you know? And they yeah. might appreciate it as long as you do it well, of course. <laughs> of course, yes, <laughs> in a non-condescending <laughs> way. That's right. Yes. So you completed your Bachelor of Science while you're working full-time, which is quite an achievement. How did you actually manage to do that? And what do you feel that you learned about yourself through that experience? So... The mechanism of how I did it, I guess, was I listened to uh, lectures. So I was lucky enough that I was in the age of online lectures. Uh, so I listened to those lectures in my lunch break. So I would take an hour's lunch break and listen to an hour of lecture, which sometimes was a bit full on, but that made me felt like I'd achieved something towards my degree every day. I took annual leave for exams. Uh, sometimes I had to take semesters off from uni if it all just became too crazy at work. Once I remember one semester we were working on a tender and I remember one night we had to work through that till 1am to finish this tender document to get it in. So that was a semester where I just couldn't handle both my work and my uni. So I made sure to try to be realistic and forecast what was going to happen in that semester at work if I possibly could and then not be afraid to withdraw from units and then re-enrol Occasionally it happened where I had to pay for a unit that I didn't complete because I had to withdraw after the census date. But that's just the way it went. I had to negotiate with my manager each semester based on my uni workload and my work workload so that I could achieve both things. So I guess I got some negotiation skills out of that. So for example, I one semester I negotiated to do my 40-hour week in four days. So I did four 10-hour days instead of five, seven-and-a-half-hour days so that I could have a day off 
to go to practical classes at uni because those ones just weren't offered as an external subject. So I had to do the internal version of the practicals. And another semester I got turned into a casual employee. So I just got paid for the hours that I did at work instead of having to cram that all those hours into so many days. So I think I worked three days a week that particular semester. I, I learned that I was a valuable employee because my managers were willing to work with me to to make it happen so that I could do both of the things I wanted to do. And they were confident that I would still deliver what they needed from my job work while I was managing my uni work. I learned that I'm if I want something, I'll do whatever's necessary to achieve that. I have a strong work ethic, so I get it done no matter the, well, no matter the cost, that sounds bad, but we'll come back to that. And I learned that I'm a night person. So I operate much better in the, in the evenings and then in the night uh, than a lot of other people and definitely better in the night than I am in the morning. So the owl rather than the lark. <laughs> Absolutely. As you said, you learnt you were a valuable employer. I think that's a really nice thing to find out because it does show you that you can operate really well in a high trust situation. Yes. And I'm a big believer in high trust organisations because people flourish in those high trust situations rather yes. than the opposite. Yes. So I did have a manager at one point who was a micromanager who really worried if I turned up at 9.15 instead of 9 o'clock. I always felt really frustrated by that because I stayed until 6.30 when everyone else was leaving at 4.59. And come on, can't you see the balance here? That I, yeah, I, maybe I'm bad at turning up at 9 o'clock, but <laughs> I put in whatever's necessary at the other end to make sure I get it done. I'm not a morning person, mm. but he just couldn't. He couldn't understand that. And that was a quite a frustrating time where we didn't have high trust relationship. <laughs> and look, that is something that I think is very difficult to get across in this modern world is that we don't have to do that anymore. We yes. have technology and we genuinely don't have to be here from nine to five. Yes. Again, if you can build mutual trust, then an organisation, a lab, whatever it is, will operate at a really high level. Mm. If people are allowed to work when it suits them or maintain their personal lives, whether that's caring responsibilities or medical needs or whatever the case may be, I may be, if people are allowed to work within the conditions that work for them, everybody can thrive rather than some people feeling mistrusted. That's right, that the organisation will do better because of that. There is two, two sides to that. So there's rights and responsibilities on both sides. Absolutely. Could you tell me about your PhD topic and how you came to choose it? So I finished my Masters of Research here at Macquarie and I got uh, quite good marks. Uh, so I got a guaranteed scholarship uh, to do a PhD. Sorry, everybody, that's not a thing anymore, but it was when I finished. And I was interested in studying molecular biology and genomics types of things. And I'd done some previous undergraduate courses with Ian Paulson uh, here in the Department of Molecular Sciences in undergraduate. But I wasn't exactly sure what my project would look like. I am interested in a lot of things generally, but not really specifically anything. So I was open to ideas. So I went to Ian to ask if he had any PhD projects going that might suit. And he has a lot of human-related projects. He actually had just received a grant, which is the one I'm working under now, which is on beneficial bacteria and plants. So the interactions between the microbe and the plant. And he didn't have any plant people, in inverted commas, that would 
be interested in doing that project. And so that seemed like a natural fit between me liking plants and wanting to do something with genomics but not really knowing what. But I took a year off after Masters. I think one of the questions that's coming up is about <laughs> self-care. <and laughs> um, but I was burned out after my Masters, so it took me a year to actually decide to do the PhD because I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, whether research was really a thing that I was interested in. I did seven years of science undergraduate and then I went straight into a two-year master's. So I'd been studying for nine years, not full-time, but having a, definitely more than a full-time load across my life in terms of work, job work and uni work. So I just needed a break, I think. Yeah, and it's good that you did that because that meant you were refreshed rather than telling yourself you should just keep going. And also people could have told you that. I don't know what they did, but if they had and you'd listened, you know, it may have impacted mm. on your being able to continue, whereas now... You, you know, you're right into it, you're very excited mm. and it's something you really want to do. Yeah, I did do three part-time jobs in that year that I, <laughs> I took off, so I wasn't completely off, so to speak. But yeah, um, that break from study. Yeah. yeah. So you're someone that takes responsibility for your own learning, that's pretty obvious. Can you tell me about how you go about building knowledge and skills that are broader, I suppose, during your PhD? There's lots of opportunities around the university and also outside of university, which I'm conscious of. So I'm reading emails and I'm looking at newsletters and I'm looking up courses that are being offered. So I'm proactively looking for things. Because I'm not 100% sure of what I want to do after my PhD, I'm preparing myself for all options. So that involves teaching, uh, research, uh, communication, like this. I'm interested in teaching, so I've taken up teaching position, which is good because you PhD scholarship doesn't provide you a lot of money to live off, so that's always a nice bonus. But I'm more in it for the teaching aspects, so I teach four units a year. I'm a tutor in Department of Molecular Sciences and Department of Biology here at Macquarie. I also take other teaching opportunities. So recently I did instructor training for the carpentries. So they do data carpentry and software carpentry training to give researchers skills to be able to manipulate and work in the digital age. So I'm looking forward to instructing at ResBaz in September at UNSW. Uh, I've also expanded my resume, so to speak, by taking up volunteer opportunities. Volunteer with Girl Guides once a week uh, in my local area. So I'm called a unit helper. Uh, I can vary the hours that I spend there as necessary to balance out my other work. I'm actually lucky because the guide leader I work with has a PhD and is a PhD coach. So she fully understands when I say, I just can't come tonight. I'm, I'm overloaded or I'm still in the lab or that kind of thing. I also do lots of activities outside of university and science. I can see how they could provide me with skills uh, that would be applicable to my future career. I teach craft and art classes. That's furthering my teaching skills by teaching different people, different skills, learning patience and teaching concepts in different ways so different people can understand them. You did some workshops in professional skills. Yes. You know, and you've certainly taken other workshops in other parts of the university. So I guess, yeah, that's what what I see when I'm talking to you, that you are really involved. And of course, I also see you quite a bit on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm very active on Twitter. I run three Twitter accounts at the moment. I run my personal one, which is a more of a professional persona on Twitter. I run our Twitter account for our uh, research group, so Paulson Lab on, the twi on Twitter. And I run 
we have a Twitter account for the biology capstone unit that runs here at Macquarie University, uh, which is all about preparing students for the workforce. I'm really interested in that and passionate about making sure they have the skills to be able to go out and do well in the workforce. As a science communication aspect of that course, I run the Twitter account as a demonstration of how it's done, as well as providing resources for the students that complement what they're learning in lectures and uh, tutorials so that they can access extra materials if they're on the ball. Who is in your support network and how important do you think it is to have a good support network during a PhD? So I think it's critical to have a good support network. So my baseline support group would be the people in my lab group. We have a very supportive lab environment where everyone's willing to help where they can, obviously, not at the expense of their own work. We have a very female-heavy lab group. Ian Paulson runs two lab groups. One is a microbiology lab group, that's the one I'm in, and then there's a synthetic biology lab group. And we often comment that it's interesting that the microbiology one is very female-heavy, and then the synthetic biology one is very male-heavy. It's not by design, it just has worked out that way in the two different labs. So we have a lot of different people that I can call on there if I need them. So across the two groups, there's about 40 people that Ian manages, so that's a good set of people that I have lots of different skills that I can ask for help or learn a new skill or I'm not in on the weekend, can you take my plates out of the incubator or something like that. Uh, then I have other PhD friends who are not in my lab group but maybe came from my master's cohort or other people I've just met around doing professional development courses or through other ways of interacting around campus. So I have friends in uh, doing PhDs in biology, uh, they understand what it's like to be doing a PhD, but they're not so entrenched in my lab group that they can possibly give some perspective on what's going on and vice versa. I can do that for them as well. I have PhD friends at other universities uh, who came from my master's cohort, but they've moved to another place to do their PhD. So they can provide some different context for how different activities happen at different universities or what it's like to work with supervisors who they didn't know before because I had the privilege of already knowing my supervisor before I started working with him. Then I have people who are in academia generally but aren't doing PhDs, so people who've taken up teaching roles or people who have moved beyond their PhD, so they're good to get some perspective on this is not forever, <laughs> This is you won't always feel like this, or this is a good thing to prepare for, or this is another alternative opportunity. People like Sally who are not in PhD land, so to speak, but, uh, but understanding what the context of the university. And then I have people who are completely outside of academia and university and science, and they know nothing about any of those things. And they're really important for my sanity, really. I can practice my science communication on them because they have no foundation of understanding anything I'm talking about. So they can look at me like I have two heads when I say too many jargon words. And then I have my family. So I live with my mum at the moment. As we already said, PhDs don't get very much money. So it's wonderful that I have her there to support me and provide me with some roof. security and a roof and food. No, no, not food. I buy my own food. But <laughs> she brings me back down to earth when I'm going a bit crazy. She really supports everything I'm doing, so that's wonderful to have that. Love that you think And she's interested in science in general, so she, I, I can talk to her about things, but I have to make sure that it's at the right levels. So again, practicing my science communication incidentally. <laughs> and that's really good that you have this very strong person that's been there your whole life to really understand you as a person and what you're going through at the moment yeah. as well, to give that perspective. Yeah, and she's a retired teacher. I think that's where the teaching aspect of my interest comes from. Mm. So she 
can provide insight when I'm talking about, oh, I'm nervous about teaching this class or I don't really know how to communicate with these type of people. She can provide me some insight. She did work with primary school kids, but most of the lessons apply. People are people. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about your outside interests, the ones you'd mentioned briefly, because uh, I'm really interested in that. Yeah. We share both have an artistic interest. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit more about that, how you came to do that and how you ended up coming to teach it as well? For about 10 years now, I've been what I call a memory keeper. So I do a lot of different arts and crafts. So I do scrapbooking. Photography is the main medium of keeping the memory. So using those photographs in scrapbooking, mixed media art. Um, I make different kinds of photo books and do other arts and crafts like cross-stitching. I've been doing these crafts and arts for 10 years. So in the last year, I've started to teach them as well. First started out when I was attending a 10-day art retreat and one of the hosts of that asked if I would teach a class. That was a really enjoyable experience. I hadn't done that before. I I was confident that I could teach to a group of people, but I hadn't done it in an art and craft context before. So I took that opportunity and I really liked it. And then I approached my local art and craft store. The one in Castle Hill is close to where I live. I had some ideas that I'd been thinking about and I, I knew that the owner of the store had similar interests and she wanted to teach people how to use those products, but she just didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to be able to do that as along with all the other things that she was doing. So together we made a plan and we trialled it where I taught a class using mixed media techniques and that was really successful and the the women that were there expressed interest in doing it on a more frequent basis. We put some place, classes into place and we've been doing it for a year now. I teach two different classes a month uh, and that's really, I really enjoy it and I feel like in some ways it makes me a better teacher over back in science and then science teaching makes me a better art teacher. Can you see future where you might combine those things with your artistic pursuits and the science? I incidentally do that now where I design a poster or design slides to go to a presentation and I feel like colour choosing or the layout comes more easily to me than it does come to a lot of other people. They often look at my posters and say, oh wow, what made you think of that? Or that's really nicely spaced or... Everything lines up, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. In the future, I would love to combine those two things. I don't exactly know how that would happen, but I'm definitely open to that possibility. So you have two supervisors. How is that a benefit? And how do you manage your relationship with both supervisors? So both in my master's and my PhD, I've had two supervisors. So at the moment in my PhD, I have Ian Paulson, who's a distinguished professor, and I have Sasha Tetu, who is a senior lecturer. So it's really nice having a male and a female supervisor, and people are at different career stages, so that I can see what it's like to be a bit further along in your career. I'm lucky in that they mostly agree on what the project direction should be, and they have lots of experience in these areas, so I'm willing to be guided by them where possible. They also communicate a lot outside of meetings that we have. If possible, always have a meeting with both of them. So it's not a matter of having to then communicate what someone else said and then there's a misunderstanding. So where possible, try and have a meeting with everybody in the same room. Sometimes it's not possible, though I feel like majority of the time we're all on the same page. So I'm really lucky in that way. Sasha is more available in terms of time than Ian is. Like I said, Ian manages 40 people. (laughs) She just tends to be more 
available if I want to drop in for a chat, whereas Ian's calendar, you need to book a week in advance or a few weeks in advance to be able to get some time with him. So for the more day-to-day, -day, I need an answer now kind of things, I work with Sasha. And then if I need broader guidance, I can make a meeting with Ian, but generally we just have a team meeting once a week or once a fortnight. Sasha normally, she has definitely has ideas of her own, but she in lots of ways defers to Ian's expertise which is not a bad thing, but it is sometimes interesting to see her perspective and how it differs from his perspective. Uh, so that's interesting to see how they can resolve their differences of opinion. So I like, I actually quite enjoy that, seeing how scientists who are working together have different opinions and can resolve those differences. And like I said, I have Ian is male and Sasha is female, so it's interesting to see how Sasha is managing being the female in STEM. It's just interesting to see how both sets of people manage all of their commitments in science and also outside of science. During my master's, I also had two supervisors. Uh, so I had Brian Atwell and Leslie Hughes, both professors in the Department of Biology. And again, one male and one female, but they were both at the same level of expertise, so to speak. They're both professors. They've both been doing what they do for a long time. They're from quite different areas within biology. Sasha and Ian are quite similar in the area that they work in. So it was interesting to watch the different ways that Leslie and Brian would interpret a topic or have opinions about how it should be done or what level of carbon dioxide we should use in the experiment or those sort of things. And in the end, they said to me, well, it's your project, you decide. So that was a different experience. One was my primary supervisor, so Brian would be my day-to-day -day person I would go to when I need help right now, whereas Leslie I met less frequently. There were multiple components to my project, so Leslie would be the, I guess, the primary, her particular specialty component of my project, and then Brian would be the primary for my for the other aspects of my project that was more in his area of expertise. Actually, it's probably been a really good thing that you've sort of had four supervisors. So not only have you had the different expertise and different perspectives and so on, but as you say, you've got to watch how people negotiate differences of mm. viewpoints yep. in a professional way yes. and learn so much from that because you've had that in different settings. Yes. Now in science, you're getting to really understand how you might do that. Yeah. And often in the accounting job, that difference of opinion happens behind closed doors and they will then present a united front sort of like parenting I guess <laughs> but in academia it's more open mm. and yeah I get to see those discussions happen mm. sometimes not always but sometimes mm. oh, it's really interesting what do you wish you'd known before you commenced the PhD? This is a hard one for me. I knew that I had to write and research do experiments and read all at once and I had a plan going in that I would do that that totally fell apart <laughs> didn't happen I wish I'd known how hard it was to run experiments and be focused and concentrating and doing all the work around that that was necessary, but then having to take your attention away from that and concentrate on writing. I have found that really hard all throughout my PhD and my writing time and reading time has suffered because of that, because I've been, it's been really intensely need to finish all the experiments to get the data to then be able to write about them. So now. I'm not in the position I wish I was. It's not a disaster, but I'm not in the position I wish I was uh, for progressing the actual writing part of my thesis. So now I have to do a play a bit of catch up on that. I wish I had established at the beginning of my PhD one method of taking notes. I have a hodgepodge of different systems that I've taken notes on papers and meetings and 
I'm pretty good with my lab book of all recording everything and putting meeting notes into my lab book. So I just have one location of all my hard copy notes. But in terms of electronic notes and reading papers, I have, I use a program called Scrivener to record my notes and some research that I was doing at the beginning of my PhD. Then I found that it was hard to read papers on the computer. So I started printing out papers and then highlighting and writing notes in the margins. Then I started highlighting papers in Mendeley because I was concerned about how many trees I was killing by printing out everything. And recently I've started, I've gone back to Evernote, which is a program that I used for other things, but I've realized it's good for lots of things. And now I've started making notes in Evernote on papers that I'm reading. So now I have all these different systems of where my notes are and I, it's hard to gather it all together to write now because I'm in the writing phase. So I wish I just picked a system and stuck with it. So that would be a tip. That would be a tip. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and if you were to go back and know that, have, have had your experience, jump in the time machine, go back, yeah. start again, what, what system would you use? I think I would use Evernote, but I'm not sure if that's just a symptom of the fact that that's the one I'm liking at the moment. <laughs> I do like the highlighting and note-taking in the margins, but that, that's not searchable because it's on paper. You can't go back and say, oh, I read, I remember this phrase. Where was that again? I can't just search that. I mean, I can search it, but I can't. It's not associated with my notes. Um, but then I end up highlighting everything, <laughs> almost. And so what's the point of highlighting in the first place? <laughs> So I think I would use Evernote and I would have a system of how I record the notes. And it wouldn't just be copy paragraphs over verbatim. Some things I would do that, but other things I would be more critical in the way that I made notes. So pass Belinda. Pass Belinda. That's the tip. <laughs> yes. So what plans do you have when you complete your PhD? So I think I mentioned that I don't really know what I want to do after my PhD. But after having a few conversations with you, I feel less concerned about that. <laughs> I've said to you in the past that this is the question I always dread from my family and friends or professional colleagues or anyone really, because I don't have an answer. So I have, a, I have an answer that placates people. So I say, oh, there's lots of different opportunities that a science or biology PhD could do. So I could work for government, I could work for industry, I could work in academia. So there's lots of different jobs that are out there. And for some people, that placates them, but you can't you can't say that in a science context. They <laughs> they see right through that, and you don't. That's it. Sounds a bit condescending if you tell them <laughs> about all the jobs that are available when there's not a lot of jobs in some scenarios. That will get a few people off my back who are non-scientists or non non-academia people. But when other scientists or other PhDs or postdocs ask me that question, I have less of a an answer to that. Been reflecting a little on what. I enjoy as a way to start looking for positions. So I definitely enjoy teaching. I mean, I do a lot of that in different contexts already. And I enjoy problem solving. So for example, my friend will come to me with a spreadsheet and say, I have all this data and I want to do X. And that's the kind of thing where I'll be like, this is really fun. I like figuring out a solution to this. And I refuse to let it beat me. There has to be a way to do this. Uh, and then I've been doing some coding as well in my in R and on the command line. So there has to be a solution. There has to be a way to do the thing I want to do and figuring it out. That gives me great satisfaction to, to figure finally figure it out. In terms of actually what I want to do, I'm open to staying in academia or going outside of academia, but I don't exactly know what that looks like yet. And as you know, my answer to that would be, well, this is another 
discovery phase. Yes. So it's just taking the researcher's approach to it. So you start with that, looking at who you are, what matters to you, and what things give you great satisfaction and joy, because it'd be nice to enjoy work. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the start rather than needle in the haystack saying, what can I do? It's, well, that's not taking you into account. So starting with that. And then, you know, telling people all these things that excite you and so on, you just don't know. Someone might say, oh, I've got this opportunity. And working it out as you go is not necessarily a bad thing. And really, in hindsight, most people's careers have some element of that yes. along the way. So I've never had a plan. I've always been concerned that I'm not a person who has a plan or that I don't have a plan. I have learned in, during business degrees about five-year plans and 10-year plans and they ask you in job interviews, where do you see yourself in five years? And I never have a good answer for those things. I mean, I can make up an answer. I was going to say a rude word there. But <laughs> so I can make up an answer to those kind of questions, but it's never rung true for me. Hmm. I've never had a plan. It's always just whatever comes along next. And so I'm in, on one hand, I'm not so worried because I've got this far without having a plan. <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't want to compromise and do something that I don't love. I mean, not that your job has to, the first job out of your PhD has to be something that you love and it's your passion, but I'd like to at least enjoy it, like you say. I'd like, I'd rather not compromise and have a dodgy job because I haven't thought about it or at least investigated what the options are and put myself out there. Yeah. It's interesting when I hear people say I haven't got an answer for them. Why do we need to answer to other people? Yes, it's our life. It's our choices. You say, well, I don't know, and I know that might bother you, but it doesn't bother me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's that attributed to John Lennon, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. <laughs> Absolutely. Having you know, an understanding of what matters to you, what you'd like to do in the world, how would you like to make an impact? Those are the sort of value-based decisions that tend to reap greater benefits. And mm. there's a lot of research around that. Yeah, I, I can say with fairly sure certainty that I don't want to be a CEO and I don't want to be a professor because actually being a professor is nothing like doing research. Not that I necessarily think that research is my calling, but those two things, CEO and professor, they just don't really interest me. I don't need to manage everybody and everything. There's probably another small niche that I can make a contribution. So at least I've identified a couple of things I don't want to be. That's, right. <laughs> That's part it's of good, the path. It's a good start. You have identified one niche and then other niches will come along. You'll change, things will shift because you'll discover something else that you've added to your you know, cache of skills and you think, oh, I wouldn't mind really using that in what I'm doing. Yeah, so, so as I said before, I'm preparing myself for all possible opportunities. So I'm taking advantage of lots of opportunities now to learn new skills and build up my portfolio, I guess, of my toolbox of skills and in the past by being open to lots of different things, something has come up. So let's look forward to that happening again post-PhD. <laughs> I'm sure it will, Belinda. I have complete faith in you. Thank you. So thank you for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, me too. It was a really awesome experience to be here and have this chat with you. Thanks. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high-degree researchers that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as ResourcefulHDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm -hmm.